and good morning. Um, of course, most of you guys know me. My name is James Rep. If we haven't already met, I'm an elder candidate here at Cross Point Coast. Uh, I spend most of my time at the Pineda campus, uh, which is where your pastor is this morning, preaching there. Um, I'm uh, really glad to be with you guys. So I don't know if any of you have met my wife, Joyce. Wave, say hi. <laughs> We're a small enough group we can do that. So uh, Joyce and I have been a part of Cross Point Coast for about five and a half years now. Um, and one of the things that we have had a joy at seeing is the gracious generosity uh, in the body. And I know that that is a work of the Spirit because I know that you, like me, uh, in ourselves and by ourselves, are not going to tend toward gracious generosity. Because in ourselves, outside of Christ, without the work of the Spirit in our lives, we are, by nature, greedy people. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about greed. Um, and I'm excited to be uh, continuing this summer series called Fight for Joy, Walking in Victory Over the Patterns of Sin. And as we're doing so, of course, just as a reminder, we're focusing on what are known as the seven deadly sins or seven deadly follies, uh, as we're calling them. Sins of gluttony, envy, pride, lust, wrath, laziness, and greed. So we're, I think, seven weeks in now. I, I, I'm having trouble keeping track. This is the third time I've preached this sermon. Um, but I don't want us to lose sight of what we're talking about in this series. Because it's easy for us to begin to look at a list of capital sins like these. And when we recognize the ways in which we fall and pray to them, and we do, um, our inclination might be to think of ways that we can do better. Strategies of self-improvement, um, as if we could, by our own effort, make ourselves righteous before God, as if we could commend ourselves to God as righteous through our own efforts. So, you know, how, how righteous do we have to be to commend ourselves to God as righteous? It wasn't rhetorical. How, how righteous do we have to be to commend ourselves to God and say, God, I have done this good enough? Perfect, right? Um, there is nothing in us that we can work up through our own efforts at keeping God's law to commend ourselves to God as righteous. God's command in Mark chapter 12 to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength for the believer is not a command of cumbersome obligation. It's an invitation to find our joy in the Father's good provision for His children, particularly in the provision of Jesus. Uh, for the believer in Jesus, we, we've seen the gospel that God has provided is not merely a second chance at getting it right. And I feel like that's how we often approach the Christian life. We approach it as if, okay, I've heard the gospel now, now I'm going to get it right. And when we do that, when we lean onto our own understanding like that, we fail. We fall flat on our faces because we're trusting in our own strength. This isn't uh, the prayer of confession time. I know it sounds like it because that's what I talk about all the time, right? Um, but instead, 
Instead, the gospel is that we've seen that God has provided the perfect righteousness in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection. Our response is to walk in the joy of God's good provision. So, uh, in, in his introduction to the series, Pastor Jeremiah at Pineda said that the fight to obey this command is not a fight for self-righteousness. It's a fight for joy in Christ. Do you remember the picture that was painted in Proverbs chapter 9? I don't know, I don't know if, if Justin used the same passage in the introduction to the series that, that we did at the other congregations. But in Proverbs chapter 9, uh, the picture that's painted there, actually, you know what, let's, let's jump over there and read it real quick as part of our introduction. Um, it's all of chapter, or Proverbs 9, but it it's pretty, reads pretty quick. Let me give you a second to turn there. Proverbs chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places of the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, your years and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling out to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, stolen water, uh, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he, do not, he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So in Proverbs chapter 9, the simple ones are being called to by lady wisdom and lady folly. By Lady Wisdom to partake in the good provision that she has provided for her guests. And by Lady Folly to partake of stolen food and water which leads to destruction. Notice again that Lady Folly's offering is not only stolen, it is a weak and watered down substitute of the good provision. The lavish and substantial provision that Lady Wisdom has provided for her guests. Is this not true of all of these seven deadly follies? Each of them is a twisted and weak substitute of the good things that God has provided for his people. It's a counterfeit of the good and beautiful things that are held out for us in Jesus. And I'm going to be lifting up this, this podium every couple of minutes. Um, I lean on these things, and if it's a music stand, I just push it down. <laughs> Too often, church, though, we believe the, the lie 
that God's way is restrictive and confining. This is the message that we hear constantly. God's way is restrictive and confining. This is a lie. We believe it far too readily. C.S. Lewis is very helpful here. He said in his book, The Weight of Glory, that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our desires are not too strong. They're too weak and they're misdirected. Think of this in relation to Psalm 1611. I really like this passage. Uh, John Piper is very fond of quoting Psalm 1611. This isn't our main passage, neither is, is Proverbs chapter 9, uh, but we'll get there in just a minute. But Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How we view this verse is a good diagnostic for our hearts. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that fullness of joy, true soul-satisfying joy, is found in what God has provided us? Or do we stubbornly persist in the belief that we know a better way? That our way will bring us greater happiness than what God has provided for us. That our wisdom is greater than His. And no, verbalized like that, it's like, no, of course not. But in our hearts, which do we persist in? So our anchor text is Proverbs chapter 1. If you would turn there with me. We're going to be reading Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Proverbs 1, beginning in verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods, and we shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they, shake, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird." But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we ask, uh, as we consider the folly of greed, God, we pray that... Um, your spirit would be at work in us. 
changing our affections, exalting Christ before our eyes, that we would find your way desirable. God, that you would be the treasure and great reward of our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Like much of the book of Proverbs, um, Proverbs chapter 1, uh, King Solomon is writing this for his son who would reign after him. His instruction for a prince who will be king. This is not merely wise instruction. This is God's word, and we would do well to pay, pay close attention to it. Much like the contrast of lady wisdom and lady folly, Solomon here makes the case for his son um, to hear his instruction and not forsake his mother's teaching. They're a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck, he says. How difficult it is, how difficult an undertaking it is to convince our children that our instruction is to be like a graceful garland for their heads, a crown of beauty. And you guys aren't allowed to say anything to your cousins about anything I'm saying here. <laughs> These guys are cousins to my kids. Rather than being instructive, or excuse me, rather than being restrictive and confining, the instruction here is to keep his son from harm, and to protect him, that his way would be blessed. The same is true for us. In contrast, the way of lady folly, the way of the greedy, is death. Instruction is really not that complicated. It's a dire warning. Don't be enticed by those who would seek to draw you into murder and robbery for unjust gain, driven by greed. The consequences of that way of life is death. It's not very complicated instruction. But what does it mean to be greedy? I don't think I don't think any of us here uh, could imagine ourselves being drawn into robbery and murder for the sake of greed. But what does greed look like in our lives? Is it, some, is it synonymous with, with having wealth? Um, if I have a desire to work hard and provide wealth for my family, or, or what if God has provided me with a good job that pays really well? Does that equate to greed? Um, what if I invest in the stock market? Does that automatically mean that I am driven by greed? Um, and this is how we're going to spend our time this morning. I want to look at questions of what is greed and what is its nature, particularly, particularly in our own hearts. Um, but then more importantly, I want us to consider what is greed a twisted counterfeit of? Or of what is greed a twisted counterfeit? Tiffany's correcting me in her mind already. Like, that's poor grammar. In other words, what has God provided that we, in our greed, twist into idolatry? And finally, what is the gospel's response to greed? So what is greed? There are some in, a, in the culture of the West who would um, not only say that greed is a good thing, that greed is the engine or driving force of capitalism, they would go so far as to esteem greed as a virtue. Others, in reaction to this extreme view, swing so far in the other direction as to say that individual wealth itself is greed. 
that having property is greed. It wouldn't be far wrong to say that the culture of the West is obsessed with having and obtaining more and more things and wealth. We're driven to buy the next new thing, whether it's a new car, a new house, a new cell phone, the latest smartwatch, or any host of things readily available to buy on Amazon to be delivered to our door in a day or two, right? Um, the, the culture of greed is alive and well here in the West. It's why marketing and advertising is such big business. I know, I'm a marketing professional. It's okay, I, I do marketing for a Christian company, totally different. <laughs> Marketers, though, understand that if they can appeal to your desires, if they can convince you that whatever product it is that they're selling, that if they can convince you that you need it, that you can't live without it, they know they have you. You at that moment, greed has gripped your heart. I can almost hear Lady Folly calling out to those passing by, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. We swim in a worldview of consumerism. In this worldview, the consumer is sovereign over his own reality. What we consume in this viewpoint is essential to who we are. Carl Truman in his work, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, wrote that indeed the underlying dynamic of the consumer marketplace is that desires can never be fully satisfied, at least not in any long-term manner. The consumer society uh, really does present persons whose being is in their becoming, constantly looking to the next purchase that will bring about that elusive personal wholeness. Um, I want to be careful here, though. We're looking at greed in the culture, looking at definitions of greed, but it's really easy to begin to look at greed in the culture and begin to think of greed as something external, something out there. While it's, it's true to say that our culture is steeped in greed and the market in, marketing industry takes advantage of this, um, this isn't how the Bible speaks of greed primarily. As, as with any of these sins, and with greed in particular, Jesus says in uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 23, he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, which is greed, by the way, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Sin is an overflow of our own hearts. So we can't blame the culture. We need to recognize that the culture is the way it is because of the heart of man. Our nature, passed down from us, uh, to us from our first parents, is to rebel against God. Our proclivity toward greed is not something from without. It's from within our own hearts. And Jesus said this, in response to the Pharisees' accusation that the disciples were eating with unwashed hands. And it's got nothing to do with 
cleanliness, accidentally, you know, ingesting bacteria or virus because they didn't wash their hands. That wasn't the point. The point was that of spiritual defilement. Sin or uncleanness in this sense is not a result of the external thing going into man, but is what comes out of a man that defiles, Jesus said. And this sin begins in the heart and then overflows into sinful thoughts and actions. The problem isn't the culture. It's not clever advertising. The problem is our own hearts. The same Solomon who wrote um, our passage in Proverbs uh, said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, he said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his own income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Again, we see something here that is birthed in the heart and grows into a restless desire that can never be satisfied. Uh, Paul said in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9-10, through 10, But those who desire, desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pink Floyd got it wrong. Money isn't the root of all evil. Come on, I know you guys know the song. <laughs> Rather, <laughs> he's singing it. Rather, it is the root of many kinds of evil. And it's the love of money, not money itself. It's the love of money. So, what I want us to pay very careful attention to here is the Bible isn't silent about um, the nature of greed. It's not silent on the issue of greed. The church has labored to provide a succinct and clear definition of exactly what greed is. The first thing we can note that is that greed is synonymous with covetousness. And this has led to the following definition. Greed is defined by Rebecca DeYoung and many others as an excessive love excuse me, an excessive love of or a desire for money or any possession. An excessive love of or a desire for money or any possession. It's a good start at a definition. I think we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper. Um, what does it mean for me to have an excessive love of money or uh, an excessive love of money or possessions? I have trouble reading that for some reason. But it means, for one, that, that I believe that having or obtaining that money or thing will make me happy, that it will satisfy my soul. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, you guys know what buyer's regret is, right? Because you think in your mind, as you're working up to buy something, especially a big purchase, that that's going to bring me happiness. That after I buy that thing, I can, I can confess, when we were getting ready to buy our boat, I was thinking, that thing is going to make me happy. I'm going to have so much fun on that boat. You know what that boat does? It sits in my backyard. It does not bring me happiness. 
And for the past year, I've been thinking, why did I buy that boat? It did not fulfill the desire that I thought it was going to fulfill. Okay, no more confession of sin. <laughs> but it's an issue of the affections of the heart. What is it that I believe will bring me happiness? True soul-satisfying happiness. Is it obtaining more wealth and things? Or is it Christ? Brian Hedges, uh, uh, in his book on these same seven deadly sins, said that the scripture locates the problem of greed in the inordinate affections of our hearts. Rather than in money or possessions per se, this means that you can have a greed problem even if you don't have a lot of money. The issue is not what you possess but what possesses you? Greed then is a powerful desire born of seeking to find ultimate joy and happiness in something other than God. Another facet of what greed is and its nature uh, is that Paul, Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 5, he said, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. Because greed is synonymous with covetousness, that in breaking the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, I apparently have memorized the King James Version, uh, we've also broken the First Commandment in not having any other gods before Him. Not the two-for-one two thing that, that we were hoping for, Greed is the sin that overflows from our own hearts when we fail to trust in God's good provision for us. We believe the lie that says what God has provided for me will not satisfy, that something else will. God provided every tree in the garden for man's sustenance. But the temptation that caused man to fall was that the one tree that was forbidden would be the thing that satisfied man's soul. Greed, like Lady Folly promises, that it will satisfy our souls. But it is an empty pit. It's a devourer. It cannot be satisfied with anything less than destroying you. Like all sin, the more ground that is given way to it, the more it wants. It's insatiable. And its goal is never to just stumble you a little. Its goal is to destroy you as completely as it can and to derail you and sideline you from the ministry that God has called you to. This is saying very little about the sins that overflow out of greed. And that's what Paul was talking about in 1 Timothy. When we look at, um, at uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 18, Solomon's instruction, he said, But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Once greed has captured our hearts... We will do just about anything to satisfy that hunger. 
And that's what Solomon was trying to warn his son of. Is that once greed has captured your heart, you've, you've set a snare for your own life. The death is the result. You know, again, that's this, in Proverbs chapter 1, the, the sins that flow out of greed, murder and robbery. I know none of us could possibly imagine ourselves engaging in heinous crimes for the sake of greed, but whatever is the object of your greed, the temptation is to push more and more, to get more and more of that object until you are willing to do things that you never thought imaginable just to appease that desire. So what must we do? We've talked about a whole lot of, of bad news. Um, the thing that greed is a counterfeit of is clear. Is be content with what God has provided. Contentment and trust in God's provision. God is good. Church, if there is one thing that I can impress upon us more and more than anything else this morning is the goodness and soul-satisfying provision of God for His people. That God is good. His provision is good. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and 26, He said, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This is the way of the kingdom of God. We need not be anxious and stress about our physical needs. So I want to back up again to Psalm 1611. Well, the psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, even in the Garden of Eden, Eden that we already talked about, the, the path of righteousness for our first parents was to trust in God's provision. It wasn't a complicated law. It was simply to trust in God's good provision. And even after the fall, God immediately begins to hint at the provision of redemption for His people. God promises us that in His presence we will find ultimate joy and soul-satisfying pleasure. To look elsewhere is the nature of all sin, and greed in particular. This is why we call them the seven deadly follies. They're follies, they're foolishness, they're not levities, they're not funny. That's not what it means. It's foolishness to follow after these things. It's foolishness that we would abandon the good gifts of our Heavenly Father and pursue these things that cannot satisfy our souls. They promised that they will, but they cannot. And even when we know they cannot, we still often pursue them. At this point, we, we want five easy steps how not to be greedy. That is not 
the gospel's response to greed. We want, we want a new law in which we can commend ourselves to God as not greedy. But even in this, we're, we're looking to something other than God to solve our dilemma. Is it possible that, that we would even elevate our own performance to the point of greedily trying to take the solution to ourselves and try to perform our own righteousness? Do we think that we could earn God's favor by our own performance of the law? Paul tells us in many, many places that no flesh will be justified through the works of the law. Christian, the solution to our greed problem is not ourselves. It's not in our promises to do better this week. We've already, we've already proven that, that greed is something that flows out of our own hearts. Greed is not merely some external thing that we can try to avoid. It's something, you know, it's not a big house. It's not the new car or the cool stuff. Greed resides in our hearts. And we try to substitute the beauty and soul-satisfying goodness of God with stuff and money. We know that we've fallen prey to this. So what are we going to do? What are we to do? If God promises to, that it is in his presence that we will find true joy, full contentment and soul-satisfying happiness, it is only by faith in Jesus Christ. For only through Jesus, only by faith in him, are we able to be in his presence. So faith in Jesus, then, is the most practical solution that I could give you. Trust in his goodness. Rest in contentment in what God has provided. It is in Christ that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. This is the believer's reality. We would do well to look to Jesus and be enamored with his grace. God is good. He has provided everything we need, Christ Jesus being chief among them. Let us lean into that. You know, faith, faith in Jesus is not, not merely the solution to our religious corner of our lives. I think that's what we're, we're prone to think. You know, that I need Jesus for spiritual things. But Jesus, the, the gospel of God is for the totality of our lives. As God, the Holy Spirit, changes our affections to delight in Him and find joy in Him, we will find satisfaction for our souls in the abundance of the good things that He has provided us. In replacing our empty pursuit of more stuff with a pursuit of more Jesus to satisfy. We will truly be satisfied with joy to overflowing. And with regard to this issue, one of the more beautiful results of a heart captivated, not by greed, but by the grace of God and His good provision, His gracious generosity, both toward others and toward the shared mission of His church. He's so good to us, church. Let's pray.